Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, October 11th, we're studying Ezekiel chapter 19, verses 1 to 14. The Lord tells his prophet to take up a lamentation for the princes of Israel. The rulers in the line of David are dead in their pride and their idolatry. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Brian Flammy. Pastor Flammy serves at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Roswell, New Mexico. Pastor Flammy, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Yeah, thanks for having me again, Timothy. So as we get started this morning, Pastor Flammy, let's talk a little context. We're in Ezekiel 19, which, as, as you suggested in your notes, where should we start? So let's just try to get some context out of the way. What, who's Ezekiel? What's he been saying? How's that going to play into chapter 19? Yeah, a group of exiles were taken out of Jerusalem and settled in the upper part of Mesopotamia as sort of a first deportation of the people surrounding Jerusalem under the the Babylonians there. And it's like, what, 10 years or so until the final destruction of Jerusalem and the temple comes at Nebuchadnezzar's hand. And one of the things I think about when I read Ezekiel is that he's like the Mountain Dew of the Old Testament. Everything is really, really intense. Everything is really extreme. <laughs> he's even the one telling the Lord, this is really harsh, isn't it? And the Lord says, nope, it's not. It's just, and I'm going to show you. And so there's a strong revelatory character to Ezekiel's prophecy. The Lord is uh, you know, breaking down walls literally and showing Ezekiel the idolatry and the baseness and the wickedness of the people that had brought all of this these terrible things upon, you know, Jerusalem and Judah. So what do we have in chapter 19? It's, it's a lamentation. That's what the, the Lord says in the first verse. Take up a lamentation. What, what are we going to encounter in this chapter? Yeah. Well, first of all, the word lamentation is a strange word, I think, to our modern ears. I don't know if you would agree with me, but I, I did a quick poll of my office secretary and I said, do you ever lament kind of like, you know, a Kramer asking George and Seinfeld, do you ever yearn? Yeah. You know, same sort of question. And she's like, lament? No, I, I don't ever lament. I cry sometimes. But I'm not sure if I lament. And uh, this is, in fact, uh, sort of a literary and poetic way of offering up a cry of distress, right, in the midst of, of chaos and turmoil and loss. And, and as we were talking about before we started, this appears to be, and I would agree with you, probably the first poetry we've enc- encountered in Ezekiel so far. Now, it is interesting, according to the commentators, a lament is supposed to follow a pretty set poetic structure. It's like a three-two. So you have three beats and then two beats in the next line, and it repeats and repeats and repeats. However, that formal structure of lament that the scholars have identified elsewhere doesn't necessarily fit here, which is something worth noting. Just goes to show you sometimes the scholars like come up with definitions, right? But their definitions actually don't make the thing. What makes this a lament is the comment or the, what do you, what, how would you say it? Like the commentary that's being made here. This is a cry of anguish about Israel and her princes, her kings, and how it has all come to nothing. 
Okay, so we're going to talk about the princes of Israel. That's the subject in 19, verse 1, and that's going to take us into the kings. I think, uh, Pastor Fleming, and you, again, you and I were talking about this before we started recording, that there's a, a bit of a, maybe a mini-section within the book of Ezekiel here. If you go back to chapter 17, you get this allegory of two eagles and a uh, top of a cedar tree and a vine. And that's meant to, to say something about what's happening with Babylon coming in, taking King Jehoiachin mm-hmm. as exile, Zedekiah being put in place, and how he reached out to Egypt against the Lord's will, and Babylon came in and destroyed him. So you've got the, a very historical chapter in chapter 17. There is this glorious promise of the Christ at the end of that mm-hmm. chapter, Yes, followed, followed by chapter 18, which is huge in its theological significance. The soul who sins will die, says the Lord. He he is just in the way that he treats sinners, and he desires that they turn from their sin and live. So you get this, this really big theological section there in chapter 18. And now as we're going to see here in chapter 19, it's it's almost totally back to that history. There There's not a ton of, I mean, obviously we're going to talk about theology, but it's not as straightforward in the text as it was, say, in chapter 18. So I, I do think with that, I, I know you're, you're familiar with this, but it, it seems that, that chapter 18 is really providing the theology for what's going on in the two chapters on either side of it, both before and after. You know, that's a great point. I mean, so the big point, as you said, in chapter 18 is the, the, the son who sins, that sin will be uh, credited to him. You know, it's not necessarily that the father, what, eats the sour grapes and the te- son's teeth are, are put on edge or whatever the image was, right? Uh, it is that, no, he sinned. He will be held accountable for his sins. So it's not so much that, oh, too bad, these poor princes, they're only suffering because of the sins of the fathers and, and the kings that have come before them. Nope. It is their sins that have brought this terrible destruction upon their own heads. And, uh, and this comes out in some other sort of parallel literature from the testimony of Second Chronicles, Second Kings, also from Jeremiah, to speak about the character of these kings and uh, what exactly were they like. They were not like the last righteous king who would have, you know, Joaz, you know. In, in fact, they, they worshiped the idols and they were also, as we're going to learn, man-eaters. <laughs> you know, they, they devoured property. They were tyrants. You know, they did not look out for their people. They did not encourage their people in piety, in worshiping the true God. Instead, they basically supplanted the order of, of the world, you know, and also the order of worship. Yeah, these, these final kings of, of Judah were, were not good, as, as we will see. They were evil in the eyes of the Lord, or they did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. That's how the writer of Kings and Chronicles puts it. They did what was evil. And we're going to see that within this lament. What are, what are the images that we're going to encounter? How would you structure this lament in chapter 19? Yeah, sure. There are two images. They've even been uh, called allegories. I think that's a fine way of understanding this. It's highly metaphorical language to talk about a historical event. And so the first one concerns a lion who is the, you know, the people, the nation of Israel, and, the, and she bears two cubs. And, and that is the first part. And the second part of the chapter is a different image. Instead of a lioness, now it's going to be a vine. And the vine loses its sap it no longer produces fruit. It's dug up and planted in the waterless places in Babylon, right? And that's where it pretty much ends. If we're looking for great comfort and hope, we're going to have to look outside of this chapter, I dare say. 
All right. Well, let's let's go ahead and read this chapter then. Get the the text in our minds and and talk about what's going on in the text and then look elsewhere how we're going to see where is this drawing from in the rest of the Old Testament and and where will this text in that context of the the whole of scripture be a part of that preaching of repentance and faith in Christ. So, we've got Ezekiel chapter 19 this morning. And you take up a lamentation for the princes of Israel and say, "What was your mother? A lioness Among lions she crouched, in the midst of young lions she reared her cubs, and she brought up one of her cubs. He became a young lion, and he learned to catch prey. He devoured men. Mm. The nations heard about him. He was caught in their pit, and they brought him with hooks to the land of Egypt. When she saw that she waited in vain, that her hope was lost, she took another of her cubs and made him a young lion. He prowled among the lions. He became a young lion, and he learned to catch prey. He devoured men and seized their widows. He laid waste their cities, and the land was appalled, and all who were in it at the sound of his roaring. Then the nations set against him from provinces on every side. They spread their net over him. He was taken in their pit. With hooks they put him in a cage and brought him to the king of Babylon and brought him into custody that his voice should no more be heard on the mountains of Israel. Your mother was like a vine in a vineyard, planted by the water, fruitful and full of branches by reason of abundant water. Its strong stems became rulers' scepters. It towered aloft among the thick boughs. It was seen in its height and with the mass of its branches. But the vine was plucked up in fury, cast down to the ground. The east wind dried up its fruit, They were stripped off and withered. As for its strong stem, fire consumed it. Now it is planted in the wilderness, in a dry and thirsty land. And fire has gone out from the stem of its shoots, has consumed its fruit, so that there remains in it no strong stem, no scepter for ruling. This is a lamentation and has become a lamentation. That's Ezekiel chapter 19, verses 1 to 14. Pastor Flamey, this is this is a chapter. Uh, well, I, I wish we had like in chapter seventeen, mm. where the Lord gave that allegory of the the two eagles and the vine, where the Lord explained it, because this is this is there's some images here. And I think we I think we're going to make heads and tails of this, but it, I I kind of wish that I had that here right in Ezekiel chapter nineteen. Right. Let so we know it's about the princes of Israel. Yes. And maybe we should even say just the fact that Ezekiel labels them princes of Israel is a little bit of a shot at these at these rather than calling them kings. Yeah. He calls them princes. That's right. Yeah. He uses a different kind of word here. And uh, one of the commentators, I think it was Hummel, he said that's done on purpose. And I can totally see that because instead of being the great king that everybody was anticipating, who is Christ, they all fell far short of his glory and his goodness and his salvation. You know, they, they again, taught the people to be idolaters and encouraged them in that. And they also devoured the people for their own selfish ends. And so they are the chief people, the, the princes. Now, there are two historical markers inside the lamentation itself that helps us to kind of pin down what's being spoken of here. And if you'll allow me, I'll I'll talk about those really quick. The first one is in verse four, where it talks about how the first lion, you know, is caught with the hooks and then taken to the land of Egypt. This is the story of Jehoahaz, right? And this is from 2 Kings chapter 23, verses 31 through 35. 
And I don't know, maybe it would be helpful just to hear that really quick. Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he began to reign, and he, ran, he reigned three months in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamuatal, the daughter of Jeremiah and Libna. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his fathers had done. And Pharaoh Necho put him in bonds at Riblah in the hand of Hamath, and he might not, that he might not reign in Jerusalem. And there you have it pretty well explained that he was taken into captivity by Pharaoh Necho. Probably, this is interesting. I have a working theory over the last few weeks that Necho may have been one of the righteous Gentile rulers surrounding Israel. Everybody disagrees with me, by the way. So, But it could be that, you know, at this time, Israel was really under the protection of Egypt. It was the major power. We remember the story of Josiah going out to fight next to Nico against the Assyrians. And you remember how Nico said, no, go back. This is a word from God. I actually am speaking to you prophetically now. You're not supposed to be out here. If you are out here with me and fight with me, you're going to die. So, you know, to, for Yahweh's sake, go back to Jerusalem. And of course, what happened? Josiah ignored Nico. He went out to fight against the Assyrians. He was uh, shot through with arrows and returned to Jerusalem and died there. And uh, we hear afterwards about how this king comes and he reigns, but it is not uh, a good reign. He reigned three months in Jerusalem, and it must have been a terrible, a terrible thing. Uh, you can imagine, maybe, according to my strange theory that nobody else agrees with, then Nico sees how this king who replaced Josiah, this righteous worshiper of the true God of, of heaven and earth, is nothing like his father. And now he's forced to kind of come and to put him into chains and to raise up another, another son, right? Who was originally named Eliakim, which is, you know, like God is upright or something like that, or God stands up, I should suppose, I suppose it says. And then he changed his name to Jehoiakim or Yahweh stands, which I, I don't know. There, there may be something there. That he's trying to uh, remind the children of Josiah that you don't worship just any old God, but Yahweh. Remember that. I don't know. Anyways, that's that's a bit of a tangent. It's but it is pertaining to the history here of how this this young man was taken into captivity in Egypt. He was also known as Shalem, and you can read about that in Jeremiah chapter twenty-two, verses eleven through 17. This is also fruitful because it talks about the kind of character he had. You know, yeah. It said that he reigned inst instead of Josiah's father who went away from this place. He shall return here no more, but in the place where they have carried him captive, there he shall die and he shall never see this land again. And it said, basically, he doesn't take thought of the poor. He doesn't serve his neighbor. He, you know, cuts out for himself selfishly, opulent, like rooms and palaces. And the Lord asked, do you think you are a king because you compete in cedar? Really? Is that why, is that what it means to be a king? Why don't you judge the cause of the poor and the needy as your father did? You know, why do you shed innocent blood? And we see that, that same preaching reflected in this lament. The second historical marker that helps us pin down the second character, the second cub would basically be the captivity being brought into Babylon and held there. And this is indeed what happened to Jehoiachin, right? The second to last ruler. And uh, we know that Jehoiakim died in Israel. And so this could only, uh, if this is speaking about the contemporary times of Ezekiel, be Je Jehoiakim. So yeah, that's that's how I think we nail this down. And I, I it would be really hard for me, I, I haven't seen any arguments, in fact, that have made me wonder or doubt that. 
All right. So, so we, again, and that, that's helpful because that helps us put the historical context here again, where we're thinking through that time, that downfall of the kingdom of Judah. You've got King Josiah, the last righteous king. And then from there, four kings who follow him, who are all, they do what is evil in the, the sight of the Lord. I think it's, you know, Jehoahaz, the one who ends up going to Egypt, the first cub here that we've got in Ezekiel chapter 19. He's, he's one because he's, he only reigns for three months. He does not factor very large in, you know, within the, the scriptural witness. But the fact that he gets mentioned here, I, I think you know, that's kind of the beginning of the end, perhaps, mm. when you think about the, the history of, of Judah. And then with Jehoiachin or Jehoiakin, however you, whichever way you want to say that, that other king, he, the one being in exile in Babylon, he also has that three, three month reign, but he does end up the fact that he lives there in Babylon and is released from prison ends up being a bit of a contrast later in part of that gospel hope that does come in several places in, in this part of the historical context. So there's the, the lion section. What about the, the vineyard section? Are there any historical markers there? Is that just another retelling of the, the same history that we're talking about? I think this is a much more image. And it does follow from the controlling image, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, Genesis chapter 49, verses 9 through 10. This is Israel speaking to Judah. And uh, so in, the, in verse 9, he speaks about how Judah is a lion. And, that, and then in verse 10, he speaks about how the scepter shall not depart from Judah. And so this, this language mirrors that specific prophecy of the coming Christ. And it's almost as if when we're reading through the lament, we realize these princes, these high chief men of Judah, were indeed not the Messiah. <laughs> mm. You know, we, this promise is yet to be fulfilled for the people and in the history of this world. Yeah, it, it talks about how your mother was like a vine in a vineyard planted by, planted by the water. It reminds me of Psalm 1, right? Sure. And, and it talks about its strong stems became ruler's scepters. This features very, very heavily in, in the Psalms, especially Psalm 110. You remember how the scepter is the, the, you know, the messianic rod by which the Lord Jesus rules over the nations. And indeed, you know, you could see how David had great success over the nations and so did Solomon, dwelling in peace among them and, and they would come and give him tribute. But of course, this is the great tragedy. You know, they, they, instead of holding fast to the sap, which is, which is the Lord at his word, you know, Solomon's sons quickly turned towards idolatry. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And then they shriveled up and died. Right. And that's sort of the end of the image there is that this, this vine is just sort of plucked out. This dead vine is plucked out of where the Lord had planted it originally. And now it's put in the desert wastes. And if you want to see sort of the continuation of the story, well, what about the original messianic promise? If these guys aren't the, aren't the Christ we were looking for, where is he going to come from? It's interesting. Yeah, I think you have to go you know, more widely, especially in Jeremiah's prophecy and later on in, in Ezekiel, or even what you were talking about earlier. Now, Ezekiel had a fine balance of law and, and repentance and gospel that was going on, especially at the end of chapter 17. Uh, where we saw the imagery of the vine is sort of introduced. And we see that uh, the, the Lord will, you know, what, what does it say? Am I will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar tree, right? It's almost as if he's saying of my only begotten son, right? And then he will plant it and will bear branches and produce fruit to become a noble cedar. And, what, and uh, under it will dwell every kind of bird. 
you know, it becomes a, a tree to give shade to the nations. And that is a beautiful image. But of course, uh, here the, the focus is on the history of these, these princes and of Judah's line up until this point in history. There have been some highlights, certainly, but also there's been great apostasy. And this has brought about the Lord's wrath and their destruction. Yeah, I mean, I think the the continuation or the repeat of that vine imagery that we get in chapter 19, which was present at the end of 17, and was also there, at least in, in brief, in chapter 15, where where the Lord asked Ezekiel, you know, what good is the wood of a vine if it doesn't bear fruit? Well, it's only good to be burned up. You know, we've had the, the image of the vine come through in, in very strong law context so far, except for that end of chapter 17, where, where you basically, I mean, as you said, there's a prophecy of Christ. And we talked about uh, in chapter 17, when we looked at that text here on Sharper Iron, that, you know, there's, there's maybe some some hints there that well that sounds a little bit like what happens with Jehoiachin and how he gets restored but but it's never it, it just doesn't ever add up and, and what you get there at the end of 17 mm. certainly leaves you looking for the Christ the fulfillment of this Davidic line and the the repeat here at, at the end of chapter 19 I think you know reinforces that 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 even this one who's there in exile and through whom the line of David will continue to the Christ, mm. even, even he's not the guy. He, he still is one who did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, mm. but someone's coming. And, and, it's, and that's where, I mean, I think, you know, trying to, to tie these three chapters together, yes. you know, chapter 18 comes back in, into play because as, as Ezekiel is here preaching to the exiles, who, you know, I mean, the kings are, are lost to them, essentially. Jehoiachin is there, sure, but but they've they've lost the kings. Well, well what now? What do we do in exile? Well, repent. Uh, turn to the Lord who has this promise of the coming Christ. And, and I think that's how, at least I'm trying to put these three chapters all together in that mm. way with, with that theology of 18 there in the center, that, you know, repent, turn to the Lord, who's got this promise of of the true king who is in fact coming. He's not here right now, but he's coming. L- look in faith to him. Yeah, that's right. Now, going to Babylon is painful. It's a kind of death for sure for the line of Judah, but it is also a kind of resurrection from and from whom, you know, the from this line of Judah, the Christ will indeed, you know, the it's interesting. The Pharisees have their share of problems, right? But they're very different problems from the fathers that they had before they went into exile. It kind of sharpened and honed their faith. Their faith. It, it, it focused their eyes upon the, the sacredness of the scriptures. It made them attend very closely to the prophets. It's wonderful, I think, that as soon as Judah is planted in Babylon, you have some of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament there to guide them and to preach for them, especially Daniel. And Daniel uh, preaches in such a way that it teaches them uh, to let go of the land, let go of that which has been lost because of sin, see the great original promise of the one who will be the Messiah is still in full force, right? And so he speaks uh, wonderfully about the Son of Man and his coming kingdom and, uh, and the final judgment and the final resurrection. It's preparing the people's minds and hearts to receive Jesus when he is born to them. Yeah, Ezekiel is certainly one of those great prophets. Here again, he's he's filling in that historical information for us, and and it's a law context, but within that greater context, this is pointing us toward our Savior Jesus Christ. And I think we'll we'll pick up more of that on the other side of the break. 
You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking about Ezekiel chapter 19 with Pastor Brian Flamming. We will be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, October 11th. We're studying Ezekiel chapter 19, verses 1 to 14 with Pastor Brian Flammy. He's the pastor at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Roswell, New Mexico. Pastor Flammy, prior to the break, we've been talking about these two images, the lion and the vine. And you mentioned this, and you've you've dug into it a little bit already, but you you said that these two images are found in Genesis chapter 49, and it's in reference to Judah. Can you take us into what's happening there in Genesis 49? What's said there that Ezekiel is, is using here in chapter 19? Absolutely. Last words are important words, and Jacob knows that his time upon this earth is coming to an end, and he wants to speak words of prophecy and blessing to his children. And so he gathers them together, and this is sort of this, this wonderful conclusion to the book of, of Genesis. And, and when, when, yeah, when, Jer- when Jacob speaks to Judah, this is what he says in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 49 there. Uh, I'm sorry, not, yeah, we'll start in, in verse 8. That, that makes sense. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. That's powerful imagery. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. Now we see the connection with uh, Ezekiel chapter 19. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion as an, and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And that takes us all the way through verse 10. And you can see those two images are clearly, I think clearly, I know other scholars say that it's not here. I don't understand how they don't see it. But Judah is a lion's cub, right? He's talking about how uh, he has stooped down, crouched as a lion, even as a lioness, right? And this is the lioness that bears these two cubs. The first one that goes into exile in Egypt and the second who goes into exile in Babylon. And yet we have this, this prophecy of how even though the lioness crouches, right? Even as Judah is stooped down, so to speak, he will be roused eventually. That's what the nature of the question is, I think, at the end of verse 9. Even though we see in Judah, you know, signs of, from some of the kings, and great signs of disappointment because of the king's apostasy. Nevertheless, we know that the lion will come, and that is Christ. In verse 10, this speaks more directly to Christ. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Now, which is really interesting because the scepter is clearly departing Judah in Ezekiel chapter 19. That's, in fact, what's being lamented, right? We see how many of the kings wielded this strong scepter put into their hands from according to the Lord's will. And now, according to the Lord's will, because of their great sins, the scepter is being taken out of their hands. 
And so the fact that it shall not depart from Judah has a greater and future significance. And, and, and so maybe this, if we have to find the, you know, the preaching of hope and comfort in Ezekiel chapter 19, I think it's, I think it's here that we would be recalled to the language, the specific language of Genesis chapter 49. And we would remember that the scepter shall not depart, right? And that the lioness will crouch and even be hidden. And, and when he is, and when the, the, and when, and is finally roused, the scepter will also become manifest. And to the point where he receives the obedience of the people's tribute comes to him. When you hear that language, you should especially be thinking of like the Magi coming to visit Christ, you know, for Epiphany. Or the day of Pentecost, where the peoples all over the face of the world come into Jerusalem to worship, and then they hear preached in their own languages for the very first time. How Judah's, you know, the Judah has come as a lion, right? To fight back against the ancient foe, Satan and his lie, to vanquish sin and death through his own death and resurrection. So yes, we lament the fall of the house of Judah, and yet there is hope still in the promise. God has not, and nor will he revoke that promise. It is not contingent upon man's obedience, as is the, you know, as was, you know, Israel's and Judah's possession of their land. Instead, it is con- contingent only on the Lord's faithfulness to his, to his promise, You're right? Mm-hmm. It's an unconditional promise, as the old Lutherans would say. That's the nature of the gospel. Mm-hmm. So the, the fact that Ezekiel picks up that imagery, mm-hmm. even though he's using that imagery here to say, these kings, Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, they're not that fulfillment of Genesis 49. The fact that he brings that up should recall that promise for the exiles in Ezekiel's day for us as well hmm. to look for that promise to be fulfilled elsewhere, ultimately, as you, as you said, in, in Christ. And so that, yeah, in that context, Ezekiel 19 serves that purpose of, of drawing our minds away from these kings who, or these princes, as Ezekiel derogatorily calls them, who clearly are not the fulfillment of the promise to the one who is the fulfillment of the promise, the true king of kings, Jesus, our Lord. What about, uh, Pastor Flamey, in terms of the imagery that's given here, I think you you mentioned this earlier, these two cubs that are described, they're called man-eaters, a a man-eating lion. What's the the Lord saying about the way that these kings ruled and the unfaithfulness they exhibited? I think it's ruthlessly, right? I mean, that's what I would say, especially we, we mentioned before this, this chapter in, in, in Jeremiah, what is it? Chapter uh, 22, where, where he says, you know, your, your father, and this is speaking to Jehoiahaz, uh, your father judged, that's Josiah, judged the cause of the poor and the needy. Then it was well. Is not this to know me, declares the Lord? But you have eyes and heart only for your dishonest gain for shedding innocent blood, and for practicing oppression and violence, right? And so there you could see the metaphor given sort of a historical and and uh, more literal flavor. He fed upon his people for his own, you know, not not literally, right, as, as the lion eats flesh, but he devoured them and, and their possessions for his own personal gain. He, did, he could care less about administering justice about teaching the people the word of the Lord. You remember how wonderfully Josiah did this, right? What happened when he discovered the the law of the Lord in the temple? It's not that he personally and by himself took pleasure in hearing the word of the Lord and saying, well, now I'm a good Christian, all is well. No, his responsibility as a king was to gather 
the whole country together, all of Jerusalem, all of Judah, uh, to declare a fast so that everybody together could hear the word of the Lord, to learn the Lord's instruction for worship and to find hope and salvation in the promise, right? Sadly, Josiah's uh, children did not do this. And that is why they're described in this bloodthirsty manner, I think. I recall in Deuteronomy 17, where where Moses gives the laws concerning kings. Mm. I mean, he's you know the the centrality for the kings of the word of the Lord. The the people the king was told you need to have a copy of this book, the the Torah, right there with you. You need to read it every day, and and which I mean the fact that Josiah you know finds the book of the law, he reads it. He believes it. I mean, you see how how that came to fruition for him. But then in the way that his descendants live and reign as kings, you see that how quickly that perished. They did not take the word of the Lord to heart. They didn't make it their daily bread. But instead, they they sought their daily bread elsewhere. And it, it led to all this uh, just utter violence that ended up inflicting their own people. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, they were devoured not only by their own selfish, sinful desires, but because they were poor rulers and because the the second generation was less than the generation that came before it. They fell into their own sins, right? To talk about Ezekiel chapter 18 again. And so the Lord, you know, consumed them in his wrath, right? He dispossessed them of their possessions and their land. Now, that's that's a great uh, point to make, by the way, that from ancient times, even from before there was a king, there were these laws about how the, the king had to meditate on the law of the Lord day and night, right? And and this is, of course, something that David impressed upon Solomon. And this is probably why we see a wonderful continuation of faithfulness between David and Solomon, even though certainly Solomon slipped by the end into all, all kinds of different idolatries being tempted by his his wives, right? Nevertheless, you, maybe this, this emphasis on the instruction that comes from father to son was lost in these later generations. You know, may, maybe this is one of the things that we ought to take to, to heart as Christians. Uh, how, precious, how precious is it that not only do we have the gospel for the salvation of our own souls, but we've also been entrusted with it as a heritage to give to our children and our children's children, you know? It makes you think about catechism class in a totally different way. Instead of being the thing that we have to do to make the pastor happy so we stay, still have some kind of membership in this church because, you know, our family's had membership here for, for decades or whatever. Now, the catechism class and also the catechesis you do at home is how you hand down that life-saving heritage from father to son, from mother to daughter, from one generation to the next. Mm. Yeah, well, well said, Pastor Fleming. That, that's fantastic. I think you know again of that uh, to go back to chapter eighteen a little bit and how Ezekiel gives these case studies, essentially of the father who is righteous, the son who is unrighteous, and then the grandson who goes back to the to the righteousness. I mean, you know, just that what a what a tragedy of that that middle generation who and I mean, you know, there's a number of reasons that that might have happened, but what the what a tragedy that that is when that word of the Lord was either not passed down or not believed. And, and yet the Lord's graciousness in bringing it back to the grandson. And mm. and I think again that's that's where, you know, this whole sandwich here of chapter 17, 18 and 19 comes to the exiles that call to return to the word of the Lord and even, you know, maybe we could say 
almost literally in historical sense, think think back to your grandfather Josiah. I mean, that's that's about where he would have been in terms of the generation. Think back to his righteousness mm. and his faith in the Lord and return to that instead of this this example of his of his descendants that you've got after him, their unrighteousness is being lamented here. Think back to Josiah and then of course think forward to the righteousness that is to come fully in the son of David Jesus. Mm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the, the the emphasis on the on the promise not yet fulfilled. Again, I I think that's that's where you're going to find the comfort here. Yeah. Also, it's interesting. You know, these prophets were ne- never preaching in a vacuum. We know that Daniel will soon come to be a, a a foremost prophet and and preacher and teacher for God's people, pointing their them to the coming Christ. We also know that uh, during the exile, the people attended to the the prophecies that had been written down that have been turned to not just an oral, uh, you know, preaching and hearing an auditory hearing, but, but something that, that was written down and repeated and copied. Right. And that's something that we see already going on with Jeremiah. One of the troubles that he found himself in quite often was being thrown into prison because of the, the hard word of law that he was preaching against the Kings and their wickedness. Uh, So thanks be to God. He had the scribe Baruch who wrote down the words of the Lord. And even after I think it was Jehoiakim who destroyed it. <laughs> the scroll, after he said, what, what are these seditious words that I'm hearing against me and the greatness of Israel, of Israel right? You know that, that nevertheless, the, the Lord allowed the word to continue to be written down, copied, published. And, and during exile, you can bet that along with listening to Ezekiel and meditating on Ezekiel's word that has certainly been written down for them and for their posterity, they also attended to the Torah the books of Moses, the historical books that spoke about how is it that we have come to this point right now? You know, they meditated on Joshua, Judges, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, and also on the recent preaching of, of Jeremiah, you know? And it's interesting, as they would have been reading from Jeremiah and reading the Lord's word to these wicked kings who would not repent, and for that reason, they would go into exile and they would you know, face the consequences for their sins, they would also read off about uh, the righteous branch. You know, it's, it's this wonderful image of uh, when you talk about a vine that's being planted, right? The vine is something that's living, it's organic, it's growing, right? And if it's not being, if it's not being watered, if it's not being fed from the earth, then it dies. So thanks be to God that the Lord takes it into his own hands to take that which is lifeless and dead, this vine, and give it life, And then he makes up to sprout up from this stump of Jesse, right? A righteous branch. And and, and that chapter 23 comes right after, by the way, in in Jeremiah's prophecy, right after these messages uh, to the sons of Josiah, to Jehoiahaz, or I'm sorry, (laughs) yeah, to Jehoiahaz and also to Jehoiakim. And right after that, the contrast is made between these, these poor kings, who do not have the word of the Lord, right? Who lead the people into sin and ultimately into exile. This is contrasted against the Lord who is called the people's righteousness. So their righteousness is not found in their kings, at least not yet, right? Their righteousness isn't even found in their own works. Their righteousness is something that is secure and yet to come, and they have it even now in the form of a promise, right? So imagine the sort of comfort and the joy that would have come to the to the exiles, being in Babylon, being in the desert places, you know, surrounding the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers and their anticipation that soon, very soon, the righteous branch, our righteousness will come 
And the crouching lion will again raise himself to fight against our ancient foes, right? And the vine again will, will sprout and, and will grow and will bear much fruit. And uh, thanks be to God that we, as uh, you know, New Testament Christians, can see the fulfillment of all of these promises in the life of Jesus. And how Jesus oftentimes goes out of his way to pick up the imagery of the prophets and to say, just so you know, and just so you are absolutely certain, I am the fulfillment of all of this. I couldn't help. Now, you tell me what, what you think, Tim, but I, I couldn't help but think about John chapter 15 when I read about the vine that is dried up and dead and being planted in the desert in Babylon, about how Jesus comes. Jesus personally comes to give sap to the vine, right? And the father is the vine dresser, right? And so he sends his only begotten son into this dead and lifeless thing, which is the world, right? To give life to the world. And everybody who now abides in Jesus, who listens to his word, bears fruit. Bears what kind of fruit? The fruit of faith, right? Which is, which is that by which we are saved, receiving from God his, his grace through the preaching and by trusting in it. And also the fruit of good works and good works such that the Old Testament saints always desired the kind of New Testament hearts that we actually indeed possess, that are eager, you know, to keep the commandments, that it's no longer a burden. It's, it's something that we are just overjoyed to do. Well, I, I think, yeah, John, John 15, anytime this vine imagery comes up in the Old Testament, John 15, I think, has to to be there that Jesus says, I'm the true vine, which, I, I mean, I think connects even even larger in, scripturally speaking, to the the theme of the vineyard yes. that's that's there, that you know Israel is planted as God's vineyard. That's a, a theme that's so prevalent in the Old Testament, and Jesus picks that up in one of his parables as well. And of course, you know, I mean, there, what are they? The 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 tenants of the vineyard, right? They they end up killing the son, yeah. but then that becomes the cornerstone on which the the whole foundation is ultimately laid. I'm kind of mixing the metaphors there, but but that that that's the language Jesus does pick up there. Yes, so it's yes. the language of the cornerstone. But yeah, I think I think that's precisely the place to go. John 15, and then also that that parable of the the vineyard tenant tenants or workers. Mm, yes, absolutely. And I'm thinking about the Old Testament parallels here to Ezekiel chapter 19 as well. If I want to learn more about the nature of the vine, I'd probably be well served in studying Isaiah chapter five. Yeah. Uh, you know, where you, you you hear the Lord speak about how he tenderly uh, plants a vineyard, right? He sets a watchtower in the midst of it, you know, uh, and he looks for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes, It were, which is uh, very appropriately symbolic of, you know, uh, false belief. That's the kind of fruit that it bore because it did not hold fast to God, who is the source of life, life, right? But it, it gave themselves over to to foreign gods and did not bear the fruit of faith or good works, right? And so also in Psalm 80, you brought the vine out of Egypt in verse 8 there. You drove out the nations and planted it, you know? And so every time we hear the, the language of the vine being spoken about, it, it, it's, it, it is speaking about Israel. And I think it's wonderful how the imagery of the vine and this prophecy of the scepter have been joined together into one thing in the lament, you know? I mean, I don't know if I would be able to make this connection, but, you know, the Holy Spirit makes it for us through Ezekiel's lament here, you know, to talk about how the, you know, the, the strong stems became ruler scepters, you know, to help us to understand that the vine doesn't exist just to produce, 
just to produce, you know, strong kings or a strong nation, but it's ultimately looking forward to an eternal kingdom, right? And an eternal and and everlasting king who is Christ. Well, I think, I mean, that's, that's, I think, where the vine imagery, if we can expand it a little larger, takes us to that eternal kingdom. When you, and, and maybe even to, you know, the, the bookends of the scriptures that, that the Lord places Adam and Eve in a garden in the beginning. And then the picture of the garden returns, you know, even, even greater in the book of Revelation, where you've got the tree of, of life, you've got the river, mm-hmm. you've got all that. And I, I know that's maybe being a, a bit generous with the, but I think vines, vineyards, gardens, I, I, I think we can connect those things. And I mean, think about it within the book of Revelation, then the way that, you know, well, what's happening in this garden, that's where we dwell with this king, the, the, the lamb who was slain has begun his reign, as, mm-hmm. as we sing in the divine service, that these, these images tied together of and the lion of the tribe of Judah, that's that's there in the, the book of Revelation as well. I think that's how it's phrased. It was that Revelation 5, that, that these images do come together mm-hmm. in the eternal kingdom that is ours in Christ. And yeah, I don't I I don't think I would have made it from from Genesis 49 to Ezekiel 19, but but the Holy Spirit did. And then he, I mean, I, I think he continues in the way that he authors the scriptures. To, to keep tying these images together in Christ and then finally, you know, in eternity in Christ. Yeah, that's right. It's kind of like an echo of the of the gospel in the same way as you stand in a big cavern like you would down in Carlsbad Caverns in Carlsbad, New Mexico. And you shout out with a loud voice, right? You speak once, but the echoes reverberate through the ca- through the cavern for minutes. And it just keeps going and going and going. It's amazing how it works in the same way. The Lord speaks the promise of Genesis 3.15, and it continues to echo throughout Israel's history, right? It echoes among the patriarchs. It echoes among the the, the kings and through the preaching of the prophets. And similar metaphors are taken up again and again and again, and they're added uh, a greater sort of color, and uh, they gain more flavor. They become fuller and fuller. It's one of my favorite uh, parts of Ezekiel. It's probably the part that nobody wants to read. (laughs) The last portion that concerns the the instructions, the instructions of this temple, of of the true and and of the true temple, and and you think to yourself, what's the point of this? They didn't even build this thing, you know. And then you realize after you 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 can the true temple that the true temple is Christ. You want you realize how beautiful this is. This is a a theological image of not just Christ, but indeed Christ crucified for the life of the world. And we see how the Holy Spirit himself uses the, that image of the temple in, in Ezekiel to say how this is fulfilled through the lamb who has been sacrificed, through the blood and the water that came from his side, right? As we know happened as G, from when Jesus hung dead upon the cross and was stabbed with the spear. And, and now the, the, river, the, the stream of water that comes from the center of the temple is, is uh, clearly bound to and explained by you know the body of Christ, which is our our salvation, our hope, and and our eternal life. You know it, it features prominently there in the book of Revelation. Is not just that which has happened for our salvation, but that which we still long for. 
Pastor Flamey, we've got about three minutes here on the morning. As you reflect on Ezekiel 19, which, as we said, has a very much historical nature to it and is a lamentation, and it even ends that way. It's a lamentation now when Ezekiel gave it, and it became a lamentation when the things that he spoke about actually happened. Mm. Reflecting on this, this chapter, this lamentation that's historical in nature, again, help us to understand what's here, and, and how does this serve in the larger scriptural witness to point us to our Savior, Jesus Christ? Yeah, so every time we see something terrible in the world, and, and this is to make it, I suppose, contemporary to apply it, especially when we have to suffer under the hands of tyrants and of oppressive laws that, that do not do justice to people, but in fact allow for the devouring of people. We should not lose heart. As Christians, we should realize that God is not just the God of uh, our spiritual lives, but also of our earthly lives. He is the God of history. And in his time, when, he, when all things are ready, or as uh, John Gerhard said just recently, as I read in his book on the end of the world and hell, when all the elect are gathered into the Holy Christian Church, the end will come and we will see with our eyes this true king, you know, the true lion of Judah, the true, you know, the true Messiah who bears and, and, and king of the world who bears in his hand the scepter that will never depart from him. And with that, he rules over all things in heaven and on earth. And just as the exiles in Babylon had to find their comfort in the Christ who was to come, so should we. You know, we are also exiles in this world. And we have much to lament. We have had good leaders. We have, good, we have had good countries. We have had good laws in the past, in, in the history of the world and civilization, or even of this country. But from time to time, because of our sin and disobedience, it's necessary that the Lord visits, you know, various afflictions upon us. And we should not lose heart because of that. Instead, we should be shaken out of the stupor of being in love with earthly things and this earthly life and earthly kingdoms. And God forbid to think that politics can save us and to set our eyes on what is yet to come and to see our lives in this world, not so much as, as permanent residency, you know, but to see ourselves as exiles as people who are waiting to return home, right? Uh, the people who are on, as St. Augustine would say, a pilgrimage, a holy pilgrimage, wandering through a strange land, looking forward to our heavenly home. And thanks be to God that even as we lament in this world and we sorrow over the things that are lost, our hope is fortified and strengthened by the many and great promises that we find in both the Old and the New Testaments that show us Jesus and Jesus clearly and show us that even though our sins assail us, even though death always confronts us, even though the world hates us, Jesus has uh, subdued all of these and put them all under his feet. Even if we can't see it with our eyes, we hear it with our ears when we hear the, 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 the gospel being preached. And that's where our hearts find comfort. That's where they find joy and peace as we wait for the end. Pastor Brian Flammy is pastor at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Roswell, New Mexico, helping us today with Ezekiel chapter 19, verses 1 to 14. Pastor Flammy, thanks for being our guest today. Hey, it's great to be here. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about the book of Ezekiel or comments on the series, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow. Tomorrow.